Right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favorite online betting company. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalized bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Welcome to this week's Going Up, Going Down podcast. We're an EFL-focused pod brought to you by The Athletic. And I'm Ali Maxwell. With me, the Michael Hector to my Tim Ream. Or is he the Pontus Janssen to my Ethan Pinnock? Either way, it's George Ellick. How are you getting on? I'm well, not very happy with that, given neither Hector or, or Pontus filled themselves with glory this week. But I would I'm, say I'm you're okay. the more proactive defender, but you are prone to a mistake. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Um, what are we doing on today's pod? It's a busy one. It is a busy one, and, and you've mentioned, well, we've mentioned a couple of players there involved. We're going to be looking back at the two championship playoff semi-finals and then looking ahead to Tuesday's final, a bit of a preview. Mm. And then we're going to be talking to two of the athletic writers who cover two of the teams we'll be covering next season. Adam Leventhal, who is the Watford writer, and Pete Rutzler, who is the Bournemouth writer for the Athletics. So we'll be talking to them about what we can expect to happen in the next couple of weeks, a bit of managerial uncertainty, a few players moving on and all those bits and bobs, as we did with uh, with Michael Bailey at Norwich uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I must admit I'm excited about this one because clearly previewing the Championship Playoff Final, the best football match that exists, uh, is about as good as it gets for a pod at the end of a week. But also I'm fascinated by the three teams coming down from the Premier League. We spoke to Michael Bailey about Norwich a few weeks ago, but certainly just in terms of, of Watford and Bournemouth, the combined 11 of players you can put together that will most likely leave but who we might be seeing playing in the championship come September and October is pretty exciting. So really looking forward to hearing from Pete and Adam. Uh, it's a good time as we talk to sign up to The Athletic if you're not a subscriber, uh, partly so you can check out the pieces that we're going to reference in the podcast today. Uh, what Now for Watford is the title of Adam's big primer on Watford's relegation. And what happens to Bournemouth now from Pete as well. They're both excellent and wide-ranging pieces. We'll touch on some of those topics later. Um, but do sign up today, theathletic.co.uk forward slash EFL pod. That's all one word, E-F-L-P-O-D. You'll get a 30-day free trial. So you can read up about the three teams joining the championship from the Premier League and so much more as well. First up on the pod, we have to talk about the championship playoff semi-finals, reviewing the second legs specifically. And George, both of these ties finished 3-2 on aggregate, but the journeys to get to that final score were very, very different. Let's begin with Thursday night's game, Fulham against Cardiff. Fulham headed in to that game 2-0 up, thanks to some brilliance from individuals, specifically Josh Onema and Niskan's Cabano in the second half of the first leg. What did you think about how they coped with that 2-0 lead? They lost the game, but they won the tie. They're heading to Wembley. They didn't cope with it particularly well, you have to say. Um, they went 1-0 down fairly early on in the game. Um, which set piece, classic. From a set piece. Um, and that, Curtis Nelson heading in a Joe Rule's corner. And... 
it was kind of the one thing they had to not do yeah. was to concede an early goal. When you're when you're two 0 up going into the home leg, you're in such a dominant position um, that conceding first was was you know basically the 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 thing they had to avoid. But they scored 24 seconds after the restart to make it one all through that man Niskan's Cabano again, who I think hadn't scored for about three years before this run of, um, of form at the moment. And uh, and it was really poor defending from Cardiff. So. You, of course, have to give um, Fulham and Scott Parker credit for, for the way they came back into the game. But generally, it was it was a bit of a struggle for them. Cardiff played away. I think there's been a bit of a narrative around how under Neil Harris, Cardiff have tried to play some more football. I don't really buy into that and I never really have, to be honest. And this was certainly as attritional as it gets. I was watching it on my own board at home so therefore obviously took to Twitter quite often to uh, express my thoughts especially because you weren't replying to my texts and <laughs> um, and you know that Cardiff when they scored the second goal after 47 minutes had only completed 62 passes what um, 62 in 47 minutes yeah and then there was five minutes injury time in the first half so you can add another five minutes to that and that shows you the way that they approached this Cardiff's game plan was to basically frustrate Fulham look to get the ball forward at any opportunity and try and win set pieces, whether that was long throws for Will Volks, whether that was corners um, delivered from, from either Rawls or Pack in the first half, uh, or free kicks from dangerous areas. And and it paid off because Tomlin came, you know, Tomlin's had a, a bad injury in the fur, you know, before lockdown and has come back into, into, into fitness recently. But Neil Harris said that he couldn't play, he couldn't play two 90 minutes worth of games in such quick succession. So I'm, I presume the decision to keep him on the bench and bring him on at half time was, was basically a, a premeditated shot. It was, it was always going to be the plan. And he scored a minute after coming on mm. again from a set piece. Um, Virgil van Mike, as they call him, um, not really living up to his name with a very poor clearance into Tomlin's path. But w- the interesting thing for me about this, because let's ignore Cardiff now, because they are not going to get promoted this season. Their season is over. With Fulham, we've always spoken you and I at least, about this Fulham side, it feels like there isn't much of a playing style beyond keeping the ball. And Scott Park has been very clear that in his mind, they are most comfortable with the ball at their feet, controlling possession and controlling the tempo of the game. They're going to come up against the Brentford side who also like to control the tempo of a game, but I would say have a more multifaceted um, attacking response mm-hmm. at least. But Fulham's good form at most of this season since the beginning of the season has been built upon a solid defence and that seems to have really gone out the window. With the individual quality we normally talk about is whether it's Tom Kearney or Anthony Nocker or Alexander Mitrovic, it's these players. Whereas actually in the last couple of games, it's been uh, an incredible Michael Hector um, clearance off the line in the mm-hmm. first leg that kept the game at nil-nil. It's been a Marek Rodak double save um, yesterday afternoon to keep the scores from being level. And if I was Brentford's set piece coach watching yesterday's game there's absolutely no doubt in my mind who I'd want to to be the team getting through to the final because every time Cardiff had a, a position where they could either where they could get a ball in the box with men forward Fulham didn't look adept at defending them whatsoever and Brentford are pretty much the best team in the division at creating chances from set pieces so that is where my concerns would lie and we don't know if Mitrovic will be fit or not my guess is probably that he won't be, given that he hasn't even been on the bench for the two games. That doesn't really seem to bother Fulham. I think this is only the second game they've lost in 90 minutes without Mitrovic this season. And given they went into the game 2-0 up, it's a bit of a false result anyway. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it, that is the one, if I was going to bed 
as Scott Parker for the next couple of evenings, I think I'd be having nightmares imagining balls flying into the box because that is, and we've seen in playoff finals um, this year, I mean, look at Wickham Oxford. I mean, that game was, was a, was basically a tear of set pieces. Northampton as well. And, and cobblers as well. And it, because these games are so cagey, because there's so much on the line, it feels to me like it could come down to set pieces again. And if that's the case, then, then, you know, as you're probably going to tell me now, there's, there's only one winner. Well, it's, it's, I think it's interesting that that's how you're looking at the final at the moment, given that I think from a neutral perspective, Mm. the feeling is that these are two of the best football playing teams by which you basically mean, or one basically means possession based teams and, and teams with a lot of attacking talent and flair who, uh, who, who keep the ball and create chances with it. Um, and yet, as you say, playoff finals rarely live up to the billing when we're talking about two pretty football teams. Like mm. the occasion is often enough to really reduce the quality uh, uh, on, on offer because of nerves, because of how important the game is, etc. Um, I, I, look, I want to just float back to the first leg briefly because I think this is... This is what I want to see from Fulham in the final. A 15-minute stretch after Josh Onham has scored an unbelievable individual goal, albeit with some poor defending from Cardiff. That's when we saw Fulham in possession, moving the ball really quickly. Um, as you say, it's such a slow possession style they have. And when you see them move it quickly, as they did when they had the confidence, it felt like the shackles were off a little bit, you almost feel like you're seeing the potential of what this team could be. But it feels like, for whatever reason, Scott Barker's um, ideals for this team are to slow things down, are to be very patient and to probe slowly. It's just a bit of a shame for me because I, I haven't seen a, a group of players so visibly grow in confidence and play as if they're just having fun, basically, in such a, on such a big occasion as Fulham did for 15 minutes in the first leg. And it was basically the 20-minute the spell that booked their place in the final because for, for the majority of this 180-minute tie, things were quite tight. Um, despite the, the two sides playing a very different style. I'd love to see Onoma have a big game in the final. Um, it's easy to forget that Onoma was chucked in to the Ryan Sessegnon deal from Fulham to Spurs. 25 million quid for Sessegnon plus Josh Onoma. Uh, and this is a guy who's 23 now. We've seen uh, a few times on loan in the championship before, but I don't think we've ever seen him like this. Just He looks to have visibly grown... Um, put on bulk and muscle and he's turned into not only someone who can relish the midfield battle and win it physically but also he's got 50 plus caps in the England youth teams he's a talented football player Um, and this is someone who made his Spurs debut at 17 I'm just getting excited for Fulham fans whether or not they go up that they've got a player in Onoma who maybe has taken longer than people thought to develop but you have to keep reminding yourselves that pathways get blocked, development stalls, but when the talent is there and when there's more to fill out physically, things can go pretty well. Yeah, it's telling that his nickname has developed from Josh Anonymous to Diego Maradonima. <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. Um, Absolutely unbelievable. And, but it was also interesting listening to his his interview before the game yesterday where, where he was asked about the playoff final that he played for Villa mm. against Fulham. And he was asked if the, if the Fulham players who, who were at the club then kind of joked him about that. And he was like, no, they know how much it hurts me. They know how much I hated it. Like, so he's going into this with that, even though it was for a different club, with that feeling that we speak about a lot when clubs go to Wembley and they lose, they normally come back stronger and more determined because they have that axe to grind. So that's certainly, I think we can expect 
if Fulham do come through the, the final, I think that on- Onoma has a huge role to play in that. Um, both in terms of his, you know, his attacking output, yeah. and as you say, he's now just a, a a physical presence in that midfield that they need. And his development, and the development of a midfield three that really complements each other well now, with Harrison Reed at the base of it, Fulham's best player since lockdown. At Tom Kearney, of course, who has so much quality, but has probably been a little under par this season. But with Onoma, that trio now seems to work really well. It's taken a long time this season for that midfield to be sort of settled and to to have. Uh, a trio that you can really trust uh, both with the ball and without it, but that looks very well balanced and, and they need to be up against a, a Brentford central midfield that has plenty of qualities itself. Can't move on without mentioning Cabano. Um, you know, the emergence of him as someone who played 160 minutes of Premier, of, of EFL rather league football before COVID hit and is now basically scoring in every single game. Uh, he did pick up a, a small injury in the second leg. We hope that he'll be fit for the final because it's just such a good story. It's one of the many reasons we love covering the EFL. This bloke who, as you said, hadn't scored a goal for three years, was basically no part of this team, was not really considered a big contributor or even a a middling contributor to this Fulham side. And he could come up big and and be one of the difference makers uh, in their promotion. They're going to have to play their great rivals, Brentford, a team they don't have a particularly good record against in recent years and a team who many people thought were on the canvas after losing their last two regular season games meant they missed out on an automatic promotion that was there for the taking. People wondered if they were shot mentally, that their confidence would be low and they lost the first leg 1-0, albeit with a a red card that didn't help, rescinded Rico Henry back and assisting their third goal, of course, in midweek. It turned out all it took was one very slick counter-attack, George, and Brentford were back. Uh, their confidence was back. Thomas Frank had said before the game that he was 100% sure they would win. And a lot of people said that was writing Steve Cooper's team talk for him. But he was right. And I think there are a lot of people saying, why, why do you say this, given that it's only, it can only really backfire? You know, it can only really motivate the opposition. I don't buy that at all. I think it was to give his players confidence to be so public and of course it could come back to bite you but I'm sure Thomas Frank worried more about the performance of his players than what people would say about him afterwards in the media if it came back to bite him that would have been because they'd lost the game or hadn't qualified in the tie and that would be far worse than anything else I mean this he was taking charge of a side who had been so dominant they won what eight games in a row after after lockdown they then lost three games in a row not scoring a goal. So I think it's quite clear that he was trying to breathe that confidence into his players, saying to them, like, you know, we are still a good side. And, and it was clear that like, the way they started that game was not a side who looked behind in the tie. It was not a side who looked devoid of confidence whatsoever. And, and I think the way that Frank, you know, I've said before that Thomas Frank deserves more credit as a football manager because there's a lot of talk about how Brentford are run. Football coach, I should say. There's a lot of talk about how Brentford are run. There's a lot of talk about individual players but he doesn't seem to get much credit for turning this group of individual players into a very very good football team mm. but as a man manager this time it paid off as well I mean his his interviews are incredibly intense <laughs> I mean you can really I feel like spending half an hour in his company would be exhausting but at the same time he's somebody you know even um you know you've seen journalists who've interviewed him saying like I spent half an hour with with Thomas Frank and I've come out feeling like I can do anything um <laughs> and that is and, and that's significant yeah. but it was, I know that you don't, Ali, like to talk about momentum, but I do feel like the the way that the two second legs played out 
Um, I would rather be in the, in the dressing room of, of, you know, in Brentford's dressing room after that resounding victory. Um, but it was interesting to note as well that Fulham, the Fulham players after the final whistle yesterday, no celebration whatsoever. Yeah. Just, would you say because it was pure relief or potentially that they'd been told if we win this game definitely the latter really you think that was a, a, a an order from from parker for I think example there is no way that you're gonna have that surge of emotion running through you as 11 footballers and a management's team and the bench and not a single person even raises a fist or a smile well then this is really interesting isn't it yeah so so it's kind of a psychological thing they've Massive. seen brentford who celebrated hugely mm-hmm. and there's a lot of emotion there the turnaround the red card rescinded bit of bad blood between the two benches and the last game at Griffin Park. Brentford gave it the big in. Yeah. And I did see some people saying on Twitter, you know, just you, you haven't actually done what you've set out to achieve ultimately. Yeah. Fulham, the complete opposite. That's kind of a fascinating little wrinkle. I'm sure this, it's, it's it? them saying, you know, this isn't done yet. Nice. You know, we're not thinking that we are over the line here. This this goes on to Tuesday. Um, but, you know, if there is any complacency in the Brentford camp, given what we've seen over the last kind of three or four days. I'm sure Frank will come up with some nice nuggets in the in the press for us the next couple of days to analyse. Um, but it does have every making of being a a brilliant playoff final. I mean, I think we both said we wanted it to either be an all-Welsh clash or an yeah. all-Southwest um, London clash. And, and we've, we've, we've got one of them. It's a shame that fans won't be there. But as a... With the stakes so high... And, you know, it's unfair to call it, a, a you know, a David versus Goliath, but you've got a Fulham who have always been the, the dominant of, in the rivalry and the side who have plenty of Premier League pedigree who were in the Europa League final, um, you know, under 10 years ago, or exactly 10 years ago, up against the Brentford side who in that season, I think, were in League One or in League Two, mm. who've never been to the Premier League. I mean, it has the makings of, of an incredible story, whichever way it goes. It's, it's kind of the perfect rivalry final you can have. And so many good players on show. Uh, For Brentford, winning this game against Swansea was a reflection of of the chances that they were able to create, which, you know, there's always two ways of looking at it, isn't there? There were some eye-catching goals and certainly a lot of neutrals watching that game were very enamoured with Brentford's style of play, which, which is nothing new. I would say that from Steve Cooper's perspective, those goals would have hurt so much. From a Swansea perspective, having defended brilliantly well in the first leg, and with defending not being the strength of this Swansea side, you'd say that they really didn't help themselves in this second leg. Um, to concede 12 seconds after your own corner uh, is about as bad as it gets. But arguably, the second goal was even worse. When you've got three at the back, when you've got a back five with three centre-backs there, for there to be a, a cross from, from out wide and a, a late-arriving midfielder just glancing it into the corner, that's, again, about as bad as it gets. And in such a big game, that's just really disappointing. I think that Swansea in general, when the dust settles, have look, will look back on a good season, an exciting end to the season as they punch their way into the playoffs in, in brilliant fashion. A lot of excellent young players, both loanies and their own young talents, being blooded and Steve Cooper sort of continuing the work of, uh, of Graham Potter last season. There's a lot to be proud of and quite a lot to be excited about uh, next season. We don't know whether Brewster... Guehi Gallagher will return on loan but you'd say that parent clubs in the Premier League will surely have been pleased with how those loans have gone how well Steve Cooper's managed and developed these players so even if it's not those three you wouldn't be surprised if Swansea becomes the destination for Premier League talent while Steve Cooper's there Um, and and just from a Brentford perspective we talked about the team lacking confidence or, or potentially being 
mentally shot. But there were a few individual players as well who whose place in the team had certainly been questioned. And it's worth flagging up that they had excellent games. Matthias Jensen, especially. Uh, there was something of a surprise that De Silva was dropped to the bench for Emiliano and not Jensen. But he came up big with one of the assists of the season, um, splitting the backtracking Swansea defence to find Watkins. But also Mbermo, 20-year-old, remember, who's just scored so many goals this season from the right wing. Um, he'd been questioned as well after after a lacking of, in confidence and he missed a good, he had a good opening in the first half, which he didn't take, but he stepped up with a great finish as well early in the second half to give them a bit of breathing space. A couple of big names to touch on here, George. One, Pontus Janssen. Is big game Pontus a legitimate thing? How, like, he's... I'm worried that this is too small a sample size, but with Leeds, magnificent in the regular season, when the going got tough, Pontus made a few mistakes and Pontus slightly fell out with his teammates and his manager. This season, magnificent in the regular season. A brilliant signing, objectively. And yet, it gave away in the, a penalty in the first leg gave Brewster a goal in the second leg that caused a lot of nerves where they were perhaps unnecessary. You know, he really is going to be under a lot of pressure. And of course, the other name to mention is Alexander Mitrovic. We don't know yet whether he'll be fit or not. I hope he will be. We've actually discussed that there's a chance that Fulham, in some aspects of their play, are better without him because he's pretty immobile and because he doesn't offer a huge amount outside of the box unless there's a goal kick being aimed towards him, which they'd rather not do. They want to work it uh, along the ground. But he's the top goal scorer in the league. Watkins, the second top goal scorer in the league. You want these big names to be playing in these big games. Yeah, I'll start with Janssen. And just even though I agree with you, his defensive header um, with the last set piece of the game with about yeah. 20 seconds ago was one of the most convincing clearing headers I've ever seen. I mean, it it was basically the headed saying, right, we're in the final now and this is it. So, I mean, I do agree with you that he's got a massive ricket in it, and it in him and it seems to happen um, in big games. Maybe he's got them the way. In the same time, I'd still rather have him there if I was a Brentford fan than not. With Mitrovic, it, it's so difficult to know um, because I do kind of feel like when, when he doesn't play, they're just, their attack is so much multifaceted for them. So they have other players who can score goals and they, they're much more dynamic. It's like seeing the movement yesterday of, of Knockart, Reed, and, um, and Cabano, that fluid movement mm. uh, in the three was just something we never normally see when, when Mitrovic plays. As I say, it just seems very unlikely to me if he's not fit enough to be on the bench for a game where feasibly they might be desperate for a goal with, with 10, 15 minutes to play, then I can't see how he's going to be fit enough to start on Tuesday. Mm. Maybe then he'll be on the bench, but it seems pretty unlikely to me. Well, his opposite man, that's not the right phrase. The other number nine, Ollie Watkins, um, it had, a, had a fantastic tie, you have to say, uh, and got a goal where having missed chances in key games against Stoke and Barnsley, again, taking that one-on-one -on -one in that game and having such a good game all round as well, um, at linking play with his midfielders and his wide men, um, he really did show off his array of talents and it's just so many good talking points, so many good questions uh, ahead of, of Tuesday night's final. Um, the game that they played to restart football after the COVID uh, break, of course, it was Fulham-Brentford that very first game back. Brentford won 2-0. But let's not forget that game was tight. Both teams had really good spells. I think with the drinks breaks that are coming halfway through each half, we're just seeing natural spells of dominance for each team, uh, almost regardless of the game. And those drinks breaks help the team that are not in the ascendancy 
uh, before them. So I expect it to be the same. I think it's going to be very narrow. Brentford finished really strongly in that game. Could they perhaps be the team to to finish strongly again? Do they have more options off the bench? It, it's it's so hard to say. Um, two teams playing 4-3-3. So from a tactical perspective, they kind of cancel each other out. They do things in slightly different ways. Fulham probably much more interested in finding transition opportunities, but you'd say Fulham will desperately not want to give that to them. Uh, and I actually think Fulham will, will have the majority of the ball. I think Brentford will, again, will, will almost invite them onto them to try and create that space in transition for Ben Rama, for Mbomo, for Watkins. Um, and they'll be targeting, as they did in that game a month or so ago, they'll be targeting Fulham's left-hand side, which has been an issue defensively all season. Um, Joe Bryan will certainly be targeted. Expect to see a lot of combination play uh, Brentford working it out there with the right winger, with the right back, Dalsgaard, uh, and with whoever plays in that right central midfield role. That's going to be a big area of pressure for Fulham. And Joe Bryan, who's done very well defensively, uh, in fairness, in the last few games, will have a big task on his hands. Could barely be more exciting. George Eric cannot wait for Tuesday night, where Brentford and Fulham play for a place in the Premier League. Could not be more exciting. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping by using the code EPL20, that's EPL20, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving. So we're delighted to be joined by Adam Leventhal, the Watford writer for The Athletic. And whilst Ali and I might be delighted to welcome Watford back into the EFL, I'm pretty Sure to say that Adam and, and Watford fans will, will disagree with that, but some, some key reading about Watford's relegation in the last week or so from Adam, both what now for Watford, just to look at what position the club is in now, and then an exclusive as well yesterday, uh, Barnsley's Gerhard Struber among the candidates to take over at Watford. And that's what I want to ask you about first, Adam, if that's okay. Um, looks like there's a bit of a shortlist taking shape as to who will be replacing uh, Nigel Pearson. Um, any developments there and, and when can we expect a decision to be made? Yeah, hi guys. Um, great to be on the show. I, I am <laughs> sort of half half, half looking forward to um, a, a season in the Championship because it is going to be uh, it's going to be something different. So I'm, I'm trying to put a sort of positive spin on things at the moment. Um, in terms of what the, the hierarchy at Watford have been doing, um, I think the process started pretty much once they had um, said farewell to Nigel Pearson um, after the West Ham game, I think they started to sort of switch their minds towards who was going to be the right head coach. Would have had a a plan A for staying in the Premier League, and then maybe a, you know a plan B for getting relegated. And I think that's what we're now seeing 
coming into action. Um, and there have been a, a few names that had been mentioned in the build-up to the end of the season. And remember, it went all the way down to that that Arsenal game. Um, and yeah, if they'd managed to take some of their chances, they could still be in the in the Premier League in that Arsenal game. Um, and I think they were then able to now go, OK, fine. So we're looking for this sort of um, tranche of, of managers. And I think they've been sort of kicking on with that this week. And as you mentioned, uh, Gerhard Struber, the, the Barnsley manager, is um, one that is under consideration. I think initial talks um, with sort of representatives around Struber have taken place um, just to sort of sound out the situation um, and yeah in the article that I've written for The Athletic it highlights the fact that there may well be a release clause in his contract at, at Barnsley and I think from from his point of view having had such a, a sort of a key impact on them surviving in the championship this season. I think it is probably, I mean, this isn't him sort of speaking directly to me in any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's quite easy to sort of take a step into his mind that he thinks, well, look, my stock's really high. I've done a job that a lot of people um, didn't think that I was going to be able to achieve by keeping Barnsley in the league. Um, do I sort of cash in on that? Do I want to sort of progress to a, a bigger club? Um, or do I want to carry on the work that I've been doing at Barnsley and then maybe see where we are if I can get them to sort of halfway up the championship by Christmas, then who knows? You know what the championship's like. You might be able to make a charge into the playoffs. So um, I think from the point of view of, of how he would view an opportunity at Watford, I think it would be very, very attractive. Um, and that is a potential option for him. But I don't think anything is, is decided at this stage and I think things will accelerate next week and another key candidate in the process um, is a manager called Vladimir Ivich who was most recently in charge of Maccabee Tel Aviv um, who's had great success there actually over the last two years he's he's won back-to-back -back titles they've only lost two games and that was actually after the, the titles have been secured um, he's Serbian former player who you know, people may well be familiar with. Um, and he's very highly thought of. He's young. He's the same age as, as Struber, 43 years old, very sort of defensive minded, very disciplined and things like that. So I think he is a, he's another option. He is someone that has had uh, initial talks as well. And there is an expectation that either one of these two candidates will then sort of be taken forward. But there is always the chance that, yeah, these are two of the candidates, but they may well have another option. Um, and I think that Gino Pozzo, having seen what happened last season and having seen it sort of fail so miserably in terms of the, the recruitment of, of managers or head coaches, as they're called at Watford, um, that he really wants to get this nailed on and, and get it right. Because you do need a, a different sort of head coach to come in um, if they aren't known in the championship. It's not someone like a, a Sam Allardyce or or Nigel Pearson, for example, who knows the, the terrain, you need to get it right. You need to make sure that it's the right sort of profile of manager that's ready to sort of really hit the ground running, come into it with a new sort of philosophy um, and also be able to then bring the squad together. So I think that's why the, the work is being done diligently by Watford and they might take their time probably until, you know, the end of next week because, you know, the players are going to be back within what, two and a half weeks? So um, there's not much time to, to sort of get a new guy in, in control. Uh, Adam, I was listening to the Athletics Watford dedicated podcast, The Rookery End, yesterday, and, and the point was also being made that 
um, you know, this has to be a, a head coach to come in and, and really be happy to allow the Pozzos and those who run the recruitment side of, of Watford to deal with what you'd expect to be quite a lot of squad churn over the summer and really to, to, to be focused on tactics and coaching, essentially, and, and, and be happy for the, the player trading side of things to be out of their hands. Um, in terms of squad churn, it's always a, a huge topic for any relegated club. Uh, Watford come down with so many recognisable names and players who over the last few years in the Premier League have been highly rated. Uh, and I suppose the way of framing this is, uh, I'm looking at the starting 11 that played against Arsenal with Foster in goal, Firmenia, Cabaselli, Dawson and Messina. Uh, with Hughes and Decore in midfield, Saar, Pereira, Welbeck, Dini. Of course, you've got someone like Delafeo as well, who's been injured. I mean, how many of that starting 11 plus Delafeo, shall I say, would you be expect to be wearing Watford yellow, uh, let's say when the transfer window closes in mid-October? It's a good shout. And I've actually on my desk here, as you can probably hear, I don't know if you can hear the crackle of that. That is the, the last Premier League team sheet that Watford have had. Hopefully it won't be for a, a long time. But yeah, mm-hmm. as you run through it, um, I mean, it could be as many as what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of that starting lineup. So, so Dini, Welbeck, Decore, Will Hughes potentially, Kiko, Femenia, Ismail Assar, and Roberto Pereira plus Delafeu. So, what eight players potentially and realistically that could leave the club? I mean, if you work your way down, you start with Troy Dini. He's the one that raised it in his post-match interview. Um, on Sky. He does still have, I think it's two years left on his on his contract. I think there's an option um, involved in that. Um, but he has basically said, yeah, it may well be my last game if the club wants to go in a different direction. So yes, we have to, we have to realistically think that he may well leave the club. Uh, Danny Welbeck, I'm sure, will have offers from clubs higher up in the Premier League. Um, but there is also a chance that if, you know, a, a new contract is offered and the scenario is, look, come on, you're, you live in Hertfordshire, having you know spent his time at Arsenal previously. You might not want to disrupt your young family. He recently had a, a young child. Um, give us a season, and you know have a have a season where you get a full season under your belt and and play a lot of football, which is not something that he's he's been able to say for quite some time. So that might be an option. I, I would expect him to leave, but that might be an option for him to retain uh, remain. Um, Abdullah Decore, it's my understanding that he's very sort of keen to to leave now, um, having previously been linked with moves to sort of um, Everton, most recently Paris Saint-Germain before as well. So I think he'll probably uh, fly the nest. Will Hughes is an interesting one because he's been talked about as a potential successor to Troy Deeney as a, as a captain at Watford. He's, he's actually one of the few players in that Watford lineup that have actually excelled since since lockdown. He's actually been one of the positive stories. So it'll be interesting to see who comes in for him or whether they try and sort of build a, a new midfield around him. Kiko Femenia will probably go back to Spain. Um, Ishmael Assar is going to be another interesting one as well. You would expect big bids to come in for him. And I think that the club would consider them if they are big enough. You know, they bought him for £30 million. There was add-ons involved in that. So it might reach £40 million. But... If they could make a profit of 10, 20 million pounds and sell him on for what, 50 million, then, you know, it might be might be good short term business. And then Roberto Pereira as well is likely to likely to go. Um, But, you know, he's always 
been linked with moves away and and sometimes his his body language does suggest that he doesn't necessarily want to be there anyway um so it'll be interesting to see what happens with him and then Gerard Delefeo I think is the most likely to go AC Milan have retained an interest in him um there's also been a link with uh, Valencia as well to maybe join up with with Javi Gracia there who's obviously you know left Watford earlier on in the season and is now uh, the head coach there so there's a whole load of players possibly as many as eight, there may be more, but then some of them might be retained because of that short period in between the the start of the next season. But then, of course, you do have the transfer window going on until October. So it has the potential to be really disruptive. I think I think that's going to be the, the key thing. If you've got a lot of big players, a lot of saleable assets, to be then stretching on for another six weeks during the season, it's going to be very difficult for clubs to plan, not just Watford, but all clubs, I think. Adam, it always interests me every season, the sort of messaging uh, that clubs put out sur- uh, surrounding a relegation and their ambitions the next season. Last season, we had Fulham get relegated and make it pretty clear. I think certainly uh, Tony Khan made it fairly clear they were gunning for immediate automatic promotion. But we also had Huddersfield and Cardiff clubs who potentially because they hadn't been in the Premier League as long, seemed to be leaning towards the more consolidation line and not being too over ambitious with how they might go in the championship this season, probably cognizant of the fact that there's not a great record of teams going straight back up. What do you get the, the sense from Watford? Do you think they're going to be bullish and say we're going for top two despite a fair amount of chaos that you've described over the last 15 mm. minutes or so? Or do you think they might pedal the, uh, the consolidation line? It doesn't feel like a very Pozzo type thing to say. No, and I don't think there really needs to be a, a consolidation um, feel around the club because I think you know having had five seasons in the Premier League, um, the sort of the, the latent quality within the squad is certainly there to be competitive already um, in the Premier League, even if there are uh, a few departures. Um, and I think that there are players that have been waiting on the fringes, and that has potentially been one of the problems that Watford have had. There hasn't been a, a strong enough pathway for players um, that they've brought in as youngsters to actually get them into the side. And there hasn't been enough of a churn whilst they've been in the Premier League. I know that the perception outside perhaps is that, oh yeah, there's loads of managers, there's loads of players coming and going. But the core of players that have been there for the for the Premier League um, era has pretty much remained. And I think that maybe things have gone a little bit stale. Um, So that's potentially something that they needed to to be better at when they were in the Premier League. And now those younger players, the likes of uh, Domingos Kina, who a lot of fans have been very keen to see uh, more of, um, a newer player like João Pedro, who has come in, um, Nathaniel Shalabar, who he might actually be one of the players that might go, you know what, I don't want to be in the Championship. I I was in the England squad not so long ago, so I actually want to leave as well. So he might be one that does also leave. But at the same um in the same way, he might also say, well, look, I'm going to play games if Decore leaves or if maybe Capu leaves or, 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 you know, players like that. So I think that they have to now look at it and go, we need to strengthen in certain positions. And I think that they will do that. And that will be partially done with some of the low knees that they've had um, across Europe that they might bring back in. Some of those players in the same way might also think, well, I don't want to be in the championship. And they may go out on other loans and then may return to Watford when they are potentially back in the Premier League or they might completely go and Watford might cash in and get a bit of money for them. So there are a lot of things to to sort out. But I think going back to the original question, I think that they will be pushing. That's their aim. 
They've admitted mistakes. Uh, they released that statement to, to the Watford fans. They're also keen to restructure the environment around the head coach, which is also important. So they're going to bring in a, a new sporting director. Um, they might actually try and streamline that situation because they had a technical director and a sporting director and it wasn't quite um, working between Filippo Giralde and, and uh, Eric Roy. So um, we will see what exactly happens in the coming days. But I think... Overall, they will think, look, let's try and get to October in a stronger position squad-wise as we can, but let's also look forward to a new approach with a new head coach and try and get some of the fun uh, back at Vicarage Road. And if they do, then I think they have every chance of being at the very least competitive, sort of playoff standard. But then again, we thought at the beginning of last season, having finished 11th and reached an FA Cup final, that they would be easily competitive in the Premier League. Um, and we know how that ended. So, you know, there's 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 cautious optimism that this time around things can be a little bit better in the championship. Well, uh, a fascinating club for us to start to cover, uh, a tiring one, no doubt, for you to cover. Uh, but thank <laughs> you so much for, for all your time and for, for talking us through this situation at Watford. It, it really is fascinating and, and the next six weeks are going to be very interesting. So thank you, Adam, for joining us. No problem at all. Thanks, gents. Harry's sponsors Going Up, Going Down, which is a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And, and now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. A weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, a rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Now, as a listener of Going Up, Going Down, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash going up right now. That's harrys.com forward slash going up. Right then, from Watford to Bournemouth and Pete Rutzler, who covers Bournemouth for The Athletic, joins us to chat all things cherries. Pete, thanks for joining the pod today. No problem at all, no problem at all. The club that you're covering are in a fascinating situation, same as Adam uh, and Watford. There is something of an elephant in the room at the moment, and that is the future of Eddie Howe. Uh, all noises out of the club this week are that uh, talks would take place at the end of the week. And here we are recording on Friday morning with no news yet. So uh, for, for, the, for the sake of this discussion, we're going to set aside Eddie Howe because that discussion of whether he may be managing in the championship next season or not um, could age fairly quickly. What I will ask you about is the fighting talk that we've seen from the owner uh, early on following relegation. Maxime Demin conf confirmed his commitment to returning to the Premier League as soon as possible. Uh, very bullish about Bournemouth's relegation and potential return to the Premier League. Could you talk me through the reality of what this means for Bournemouth financially. Uh, in your piece, What Happens to Bournemouth Now, one of the things you made very clear was that this is not a club whose revenue outside of broadcast revenue uh, is particularly significant. So certainly from a financial perspective, this is quite a hit for Bournemouth. 
yeah, relegation is. And I think that everyone's been aware of that. And that's why there was quite a lot of expectation and anticipation about what the owner would say and, and what his situation would be because he is so important and he was so important when they were in the Football League because, as you say, their their outside revenue sources aren't very big. They've still got a small stadium at the Vitality, about 11,500 capacity just below that. Um, and they were very, very reliant on television money in the Premier League. It made up 88% of their turnover. So that will drop. That will come down by more than half when they go down. So immediately there are questions saying, well, how are they going to plug the gap? But the owner coming out and saying he's committed um, really does reassure a lot of people um, at the club going forward. And obviously, as we'll talk about in a bit, the sale of key players like Nathan Ake should also help. So there's, I think... After Sunday, there was an immediate sense of, okay, what now? Like, this is quite concerning. But since the owners come out, that's been quite reassuring. Um, but, you know, that said, they, you know, they, they will need to, I think, in my own opinion, they'll have to try and bounce back quickly. Otherwise, after the three-year parachute payments, which are about 100 million over those three years, um, it'll become a lot more challenging. You mentioned Nathan Ake there, and, and as Ali said, we don't know the situation necessarily with Eddie Howe, but we can expect Nathan Ake to sign for Manchester City in the coming days and for what is a big fee um, for a championship club to be bringing in. So how many others do we think will follow him out of the door? Because there are still probably, what, six or seven players in the Bournemouth squad who you'd be surprised to see playing in the second tier. But does that fee that Bournemouth are getting in for Ake mean they can be a little bit more bullish in the in the market in terms of selling? Yeah, I think so. That's that's sort of my understanding with it. It's a good fee for Ake. I think I think last summer they would have wanted a bit more, but you know, we're in a completely different environment now with the coronavirus pandemic and obviously relegation too. So they they'll be quite pleased to get such a good fee for him. He didn't have a wage reduction clause in his contract, which would have been a concern. So it was always likely to leave. Um I think it would have been likely to leave even if the club hadn't gone down to be honest, but you know, I think we can expect more departures. I think, you know, the owners said in his statement and the club really do want to try and keep as much of their young squad together. But I think, you know, Ake, he's pretty much gone now. Joshua King, I think we can expect to leave. Callum Wilson too, he'll have eyes on playing in the European Championships for England. So if he's a, they, these are players who don't want to be playing in the second tier. And then there's another batch after that, I think, which are slightly more uncertain, but you know, that longer term will certainly be looking to step back into the Premier League. You know, David Brooks, of course, Lewis Cook, uh, Jefferson Lerma um, and, and Aaron Ramsdale too, who's, who's done so well in his first Premier League season. Don't forget, Callum Wilson, that you can score goals in the Championship and get an England call-up, as David <laughs> Nugent proved back in uh, back in 2007. Uh, it's a fascinating time from an EFL nerd perspective, Pete, and that is exactly what we are. At Bournemouth have been a sort of bane of our lives to some extent. They've been hoovering up quite a lot of EFL talent in the last few years um, who have had sort of mixed immediate success at Premier League level, not surprising for, for young players as they are. But do you expect the likes of Mepham uh, and Kelly and Stacey and dare I say it with my fingers very much crossed, David Brooks might be the core of, of a Bournemouth side in the Championship and maybe some of those younger players as well who we've seen out on loan the likes of Surridge and Offerbore. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's one of the most encouraging things for Bournemouth. And when you think about whether they'll be competitive next season, they have always focused on plucking talent from the Football League. It's the market they feel strongest uh, within scouting. And um, as you say, Jack Stacey's done well in his first season, I think. Um, Lloyd Kelly, we haven't seen so much of, of course, because of injury, but he's come in just after lockdown and looked very, very assured. And, you know, he's, he's a good player again who attracted 
big interest before. So and Chris Mappham too. So there's definitely that young core um, that really is quite reassuring. And I think that the key word you said there was immediate. I think you know with the focus on Bournemouth's recruitment, there's always a sense of we want to buy young, develop, and move them forward. Um, a lot of these players we haven't seen that next progression yet. Um, but this will be an opportunity for them and, and certainly some of their young players from their academy too, like Nam Diofavor, who's done very well at Wickham and Sam Surridge, who's proven he can score goals at that level. So with that core and then a couple of others who, you know, perhaps key players who won't be able to get the move this summer, hopefully, maybe Brooks, um, then you have the, you know, you, you have the ingredients for quite a good, strong squad. For anybody listening who wants to read some of Pete's stuff on The Athletic, there is so much on there since the relegation was confirmed. I dare say we might have some exclusives this weekend or some reaction at least to big news involving the manager as well. Absolutely, but some recommended reading. What happens to Bournemouth now just to look forward into the situation after relegation? A really interesting piece with Tom Warville as well. Where did it go wrong for Bournemouth's midfield this season? And then just yesterday, is Nathan Ake good enough for Man City? Plenty of stuff there and we look forward to reading more of your stuff Pete thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today no problem thanks for having me Ali you said you were very excited to speak to both Adam and Pete did it live up to your pre-pod expectations yeah possibly even more so to be honest I think I enjoyed it more than I expected to and my expectations were high not only talking about the playoff final which could barely be more exciting uh, as discussed at the top of the show. But also, like, I'm really excited for this group of teams coming down from the Premier League. I know it's a bit of a weird thing to say because for their fans, dare I say it, for the the people that cover the clubs, you'd ideally still be in the Premier League. Certainly Watford and Bournemouth and Norwich, who have made some early transfer moves, are going to add to the rich tapestry of the championship a massive thank you to pete and to adam for joining us and you can find all of their news all of their articles and plenty of the best efl content going over at the athletic please go over now and get a 30-day free trial at theathletic.co.uk forward slash efl pod that's been this week's going up going down podcast for the athletic please subscribe we can't wait to be back next week with a new episode join us then